Father, you are the place that we run to. Your throne of grace, love, compassion, mercy. And we can run to you because you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. He has made the way so that we can run to our Father, so that we can fall into grace. We don't have to hide. We don't have to wait. We can just come. As we study your word today, Father, I pray for your guidance. I pray that your spirit will be the one to teach us, that your voice will be the one we hear, that our hearts will be open Whatever you need us to respond to today, Lord, we would be willing to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a high priest, a great high priest, sorry, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is why we're only taking three verses. So much in those three little verses that we need to uh, get into. So last week we spent our time focused on the word of God. And the place of preeminence that the word must have in our lives as followers of Christ. We talked about how Jesus, being the Logos, the very expression and communication of God as the word, which was, uh, is explained to us in John chapter 1, because the word is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And knowing that we will give an account to God, which we talked about last week, we will now move into our verses for today, where we will see Jesus as our great high priest, and how through him we can boldly approach God's throne when we need help. Well, I'm excited. I know I mentioned that. These verses are great. I hope I hope you're as excited as I am before we're done. So in verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And now I say this a lot, but it's important for us to keep in the back of our mind. We are picking the book of Hebrews apart bit by bit. Sometimes it's a little bit bigger bit. Sometimes it's a little bit smaller, like last week and this week. But that's not necessarily how it was intended to be taken. When this letter was sent to its intended recipients by, I believe it was Paul, who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, when he sent that letter, they were supposed to sit down and read it front to back. Because we've talked about the confession of our hope. We've talked about Jesus passing through the heavens. We've touched on him being our high priest. And we're not even going to spend a lot of time on it today. Um, and all of this stuff, if you read it all at once, it allows you to keep the context. So I highly recommend you 
are continually reading the book of Hebrews while we're studying it. It's good for you. Uh, but because we understand that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, we can hold fast or hold firmly to our confession of faith. So great high priest. Throughout the Old Testament, the high priest had two roles. First, he was to represent the people before God. Right? And we, we see this throughout the law. We see this in various places, even in the New Testament. The high priest went into the temple. Right? The priests in general could burn incense or make sacrifices. The high priest was the only one who could actually enter the presence of God into the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year, and then only with a bunch of sacrifices. We're going to talk about that later in Hebrews. We talked about that a ton back in Leviticus when we were there. So that was his job. He would go before God as a representative of the people. But second, he was to represent God before the people. So he represented the people to God. Then he would represent God before the people. Remember in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and 3, I don't remember which chapter it's in. It's early in Luke. Zacharias went into the temple to burn incense, and the people waited for him. And when he tarried, because the angel Gabriel was telling him that his wife was going to have a baby, and he was having a hard time believing that, so he was struck silent and whatnot, they thought something was wrong, and then he finally came out. And they realized that something had happened because he couldn't talk anymore. Well, the reason they noticed that is when the, when the priest would come out after burning incense, he would give the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you his peace. That was the priestly blessing that they would pronounce before the people. That was him representing God to the people. So, of course, Jesus does this we're not going to spend a lot of time on Jesus as our high priest, because if you read ahead just a little bit, verse, or chapters 5, 6, 7, we're going to talk about Jesus as our high priest a lot. But, by way of illustration or understanding for today, Jesus represents us before God. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate there is, is the same word that we would use, say, as lawyer. Right? God the Father is the judge. Jesus is our lawyer. So when we blow it, Jesus is the one who defends us. That's a pretty sweet deal. And then he represents, Jesus represents God before us. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And don't let that word firstborn mess with you. Uh, there are cults out there um, that will use Colossians 1.15 to say, oh, see, Jesus was born. He was created. Uh, specifically, the Jehovah's Witnesses use that. So do the, so does the, the Mormons. Uh, they really like that verse. See, Jesus isn't God. He was created. But you have to go on and read verse 16, 17, and 18, where it talks about him being the creator of the universe. I have a really fun story about that. I may have shared this before. I had just finished, uh, I was working on my bachelor's degree, and I had just finished my class on cults and world religions, and I wrote a paper on the false teachings of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. 
Guess who knocked on my door? So this poor, sad, unsuspecting uh, representative of, of the Mormon church knocked on my door. The first thing they said, well, can we agree that the King James Bible is authoritative? I said, sure, I'll agree with that. And I turned around and said to my son, who was, oh gosh, this was eight years ago, nine years ago. So he was much younger. Than I said, John, yeah, Dad, go grab my King James Bible off the shelf. And, and the poor, poor lady, she just turned white. Because who has a King James Bible handy? I do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a few of us do, right? So I said, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? She goes, well, turn to Colossians 1.15. Okay. So I turned to Colossians 1.15, and she says, see, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is clearly created. I said, that's an interesting take. I said, is it okay if I read verse 16? She said, okay. Which says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. I said, how could he create everything if he's created? Well, um, well, you, you don't understand that verse. I said, oh, no, I understand it pretty well. I said, you're interpreting it wrong. That was her next argument. I said, I didn't interpret anything. All I did was read it. Now tell me how he could be a created being if he created all things. And we went on from there, and then they never came back. Go figure. And I think that's followed me. They've never knocked on my door since. Like, oh, he moved there. Don't go there. I hope so. I hope I have that reputation. Um, but of course, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is reiterated in John chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then again in verse 14. The next part of this verse says that he passed through the heavens after Jesus' death and resurrection to save us from our sins and his appearances for 40 days. Jesus then ascended to the place of authority at the right hand of God the Father. That's what it means that he passed through the heavens. We can see this in Luke chapter 24, verses 49 through 53, and then Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and 11. Both of these times, we are given the promise of his return. And I absolutely love that. There's a couple verses that help us with this. Ephesians 4.10, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, there is a whole nother line of thought of, well, where did he descend, right? He descended into the belly of the earth, into the holding place, what we call Sheol, because um, everybody gets, there's a difference between Sheol and Gehenna. Sheol is the abode of the dead. Gehenna is the lake of fire. That is the final judgment. We call Sheol hell. Gehenna is a lake of fire. It is beyond Sheol. So very, there's a lot we could unpack there. There's a lot we could spend time on, but this is what you need to know. You can read Ephesians 4. You can go to Luke chapter... It's in the book of Luke. <laughs> the rich man and Lazarus. And for some reason, the chapter has escaped my head. But look up the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, it's not a parable because Jesus used a name, and Jesus never used names in parables. So it's an account. It's something that actually happened. Well, what we're taught is 
And Jesus even predicted this. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That passage in Ephesians chapter 4, as well as the passage somewhere in the book of Luke with the rich man and Lazarus, teaches us that when Jesus died, the three days and three nights he spent in the tomb, he descended into Sheol. Now, Sheol, what's that? Luke 16. That's what I said. Just agree with me, right? It'll make me feel better. Uh, that's not what I said. I couldn't remember. Uh, so he descended for three days and three nights. What did he do there? Well, according to Ephesians, he preached to the souls that were captive. Now, we have to understand what that means. Was he preaching to those who were condemned? No. Sheol had two sides to it, Abraham's bosom and a side of torment. He was preaching to those who were in Abraham's bosom, the side of comfort. Those who were in Abraham's bosom, the side of comfort, were those who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They believed by faith that God would send their Messiah, and they died in that faith. They didn't earn their way to heaven. They weren't there because of their good works. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's why Abraham was there. Not because of his good works, but because he believed God. And that belief was accounted as righteousness. So when Jesus ascended, he led captivity captive. This is still all in Ephesians 4. What does that mean, that he led captivity captive? Well, those who were on the side of Abraham's bosom, the side of comfort, were then led into the presence of God. Oh, good stuff. Right? Because they couldn't go into the presence of God until Jesus died and rose again, taking care of their sins. Once he did, then they could go into the presence of God. So basically, he spent three days down there going, hey guys, everything you believed, here I am. And we're going to go home. I'm going to take you home. And that's exactly what he did. Now, when we die as believers, we go directly into the presence of, the, of, of God, of God. There's only one. Because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Can't wait. Right? Death is not the end. Death is moving there. Death is you throw off the old house, you move into the new one, in the presence of God. I have a feeling I'm going to look like Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Thanks! I'll be me, but like Chris Hemsworth. It's not nice to laugh at people. I figured I'd get a joke. My mom's probably cracking up over that, too. Um, but we get a new body, a glorified body, uh, which is a whole other discussion. So what happened to the other half? The place of torment is still there. How do we know it's still there? Because in the book of Revelation, when the great white throne judgment finally comes, it says that Hades gives up its dead for judgment. And so when that happens... The other side of torment. So people who die today apart from Christ go to that side and they wait. When the day of the great white throne judgment comes, they will stand before God and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. So I always put it this way. Sheol is kind of like county jail. Right? What do you do in county jail? You wait for your trial. Once you go through your trial and say you're, you're sentenced to life in the federal prison, well then you go to the real prison. Sheol is the county jail. That's where they're waiting for judgment. That's what we call or what we consider hell. After the final judgment, we're cast into Gehenna, the lake of fire. Bad place. 
That's all to say that Jesus descended and then he ascended to the right hand of God. I, I didn't have to go through all that, but I felt it important. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says that God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, right? There's another reference to it. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because of this, because he is our great high priest, because he is our advocate, because he is seated at the right hand of God, we can hold fast our confession. We are to hold on to, retain, or keep our confession or profession of we are told twice in Hebrews chapter 2 to hold the beginning of our confidence firm to the end, which is the same thing we're being told here. And so here we are given the reasoning that since Jesus is our high priest, since he's seated at the right hand of God, we can hold our confession firmly, not by our own power, but by his power and his grace. And then the scripture gives us a very fascinating insight into our sympathetic high priest. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. As our high priest, Jesus can sympathize or have compassion for us in our weaknesses. How can he do this? Well, because he was tempted in all points as we are, but he never sinned. He did not sin. Now, it's important for us to remember that temptation itself is not sin. Giving in to temptation is. They're two different things. James 1, 14 through 15 reminds us that each one of us is tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires or enticed. Maybe we want something, and so we go running after sin, or maybe the devil dangles the carrot out in front of us and says, oh, doesn't this look fun? Or don't you want to do that? Or wouldn't it be easier, right? So we're either drawn away by our own desires or we're enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. So we're never tempted by God. We're tempted by our own foolish desires or we're tempted when our enemy tries to get us to fall. And when we give in to that, we sin. And if we don't repent of it, if we don't walk away from it, if we don't let Jesus cleanse us and heal us from it, it brings us to death. So when was Jesus tempted? Well, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You can also read about it in Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. Jesus was tempted in three ways. He was tempted to turn the stones into the bread. He was tempted, uh, after being shown all the kingdoms of the world, to bow down and worship the devil, and then he would give them to him. And he was tempted to throw himself up off the temple, and that God would protect him. Three ways. The lust of the flesh. You're hungry. Turn the stones into bread. The lust of the eyes. Look, here's all the kingdoms of the earth. You can have them. You'll just worship me. That's what the devil says. And the pride of life. Oh, throw yourself off the temple. Your dad will protect you, won't he? Each time Jesus responded to scripture. 
This is what we are told we will be tempted by in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This, incidentally, is the same way Eve was tempted. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the devil began by casting doubt on God's word, has God really said? Then he made Eve believe that she was missing something or that God was holding something back. Oh, God just told you that because he knows if you eat of that fruit, you're going to be just like him. And he doesn't want that. Oh, the devil is, the devil's very good at what he does. He's very, very good at what he does. He makes us think we're missing something. Or he makes us think that there's something wrong with us, that, that we're broken and can't be fixed. Or he makes us think that that, that little thing that we want, oh, that's, that's not good. Go ahead. One little bite. What's it going to hurt? Well, here we are, 6,000 or so years later. It still hurts. And he knew that. So sin always has consequences. And then she was tempted by the same three things. She saw the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to look at, lust of the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And I, I don't know, if, you, if you're really honest with yourself, if I'm really honest with myself, every time I fall, every time I stumble, every time I do something stupid, it usually falls into one of these categories. My own pride, satisfying some desire of my flesh, or because I saw something that I wanted, someone come up to me after church once and say, well, that can't be true. You know, sometimes this tempts me. And I said, well, which category does it fall into? Said, well, none of them. Oh, and then I could help them identify. No. I promise. It's one of those. So what's the difference between Jesus' temptation and Eve's? Or Jesus' temptation and ours? Jesus was tempted in all points, yet without sin. Choris hamartia, without sin. It means separate or apart from sin or offense. Because of this, Jesus was born sinless. We can make a case from Scripture that the sin nature is passed from the Father to the child. Well, because Jesus' Father is God the Father, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, sin nature was not passed to him. Then, when he was tempted in all points and successfully endured that temptation, Choris Hamartia, without sin, he was then able to live a sinful life. And he had to do this so that he could die in our place. Because if he wasn't perfect, he couldn't die in our place. And so he lived a perfect life so he could die the death we deserve. And then whoever believes in him will be saved. Now, we know temptation will come. I would like to, you know, uh, 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 blow sunshine in your ear and tell you, oh, no, you're a Christian. Life will be easy. But I don't want to be a liar. That would be a sin. Um, and 
You know better anyway. And if anybody tells you that you shouldn't have any trouble in this life, that you'll never have difficulty, you'll never be sick, you'll never... They are lying to you. And they are not preaching the word of God because the word of God tells us otherwise. In fact, Jesus promised, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It's not about living a life without trouble. It's about living a life in victory that Christ won for us through that trouble. So we know temptation will come. We know that it's typically going to come in one of the three ways we have discussed. And since we are not Jesus, I, I don't know, anybody here, right? I'm not Jesus, and neither are you. It's pretty likely that we're not going to live choris hamartia. We're not going to live without sin. We're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall. So what do we do? Well, I got a couple things. First, be in the word and prayer. Psalm 119.11 that we talked about last week. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you have a particular sin that's troubling for you, find the scripture that will help you with it. Memorize that scripture. And when the temptation for that sin comes up, start quoting scripture. Tell you something. It's a lot harder, not impossible, but a lot harder to sin when you're repeating scripture to yourself. Like I said, not impossible, but harder. And be in prayer. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus tells his followers, if you don't want to enter into that temptation, right? Not be tempted, but enter into that temptation. Pray. Spend time in prayer. Second, look for the way of escape. There will always be one. There will always be a way of escape because God promises this to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it, right? Temptation is going to come, but God is faithful and he will give you a way out. Our problem? We don't always get it. Maybe you're tempted to lie. What's the way out? Tell the truth. Maybe you're tempted to look at something on the laptop or your phone or some other internet connected device that you shouldn't look at. What's the way out? Close the browser. Put it away. Seems pretty simple, right? Now, you all know my story. I struggled with that. When the temptation comes, turn it off, put it down, and walk away. I have to. Not because I want to give in to that temptation again, just because I know I could. And I don't want that to happen. Right? What if the temptation is to tear somebody apart because they've done something you don't like? This one's easy. Shut up. Right? See all the spiritual wisdom I give you? Right? If someone's made you mad and you just want to rip them a new one, be quiet. Wait until God can give you wisdom so that you can respond. Because we're called to love people, not tear them apart. Now, don't get me wrong. I still struggle with that one. I don't always do that. So what happens, though, if you fail, right? Maybe you're in the Word, 
Maybe you're in prayer. Maybe you looked for the way of escape and you decided not to take it because that's what happens, right? Sin isn't an accident. But you decide not to take it. If and when we sin, we confess and repent. 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you have to understand, though, the whole point of all that we've talked about for the last 10 minutes is that Jesus is compassionate on us when we are tempted because he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. I can have, and, and Roy and I have talked about this a little bit because Roy's been struggling with a little bit of gout. I have great compassion on people who have gout attacks because I've had them. I know what it's like. And when someone has that, issue, I, my heart goes out to them because I know the pain. I really do. Right? Your life experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it's you've gone through, God can use that in you to have compassion on others who are dealing with those things. But ultimately, Jesus knows what we're going through. Jesus knows what we deal with. So he can have and does have compassion on us, which is what verse 16 goes on to say. Let us therefore, right? Remember, therefore, because we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, because of that, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly to the throne of grace. We have a high priest who is our advocate before the throne of God. Because we are, by God's grace and power, holding fast our confession, because he's compassionate, because he understands the trials and temptations we face, because of this, we are invited. Invited. Not just told we can but invited. That's a difference. It's a big difference to come to God's throne of grace. And you know the difference, right? Maybe you hear about somebody having a party. Oh, well, it'd kind of be fun if, if I could come to that party. Well, I, I mean, I guess. Does that feel like an invitation? But what if the person comes up to you and goes, hey, I'm throwing a party and I'd love to have you there. That's an invitation. That feels good. Right? God's not saying, well, I mean, I guess you big screw up. If you've got no other place to go, you can come talk to me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we're invited. He wants us to come. That's why we sing that song, Run to the Father. We don't run to the Father as a last resort. We run to the Father because that's what he wants us to do. He has invited us to come to him. And not just to come, but to come boldly. The word in Greek, come boldly, is parousia. And it means with all outspokenness, frankness, bluntness, assurance, confidence, freely, openly, and plainly. Do you think he wants us to come? Well, well, God, I, uh, uh, could you please help me a little bit? I kind of, no, that's not what he wants. 
Daddy, I need you if you're saved. Daddy God, I need help if you're a heretic. Right? Daddy God is no way to address the creator of the universe. I'm just saying that. If you do that, I'll try not to judge you, but I won't succeed. It's a lot of things. You ever heard someone pray, Daddy God? Oh, it hurts. It just hurts me. He is my daddy, but I'm going to address him with a little more reverence than that. It's just me personally. Other people feel comfortable doing that. Fine. God will take care of that. But he'll do so with compassion and love because he's so much better than I am. Uh, but we talked about this last week. Nothing's hidden. He already knows. And we know we have an advocate before the Father in Jesus Christ the righteous. And as a result, we can come boldly to God's throne with assurance, not trying to hide anything. Let me illustrate this with a scene from my own life. I was 15 years old. And for those of you who know me a little better than others, I never had a good relationship with my father. Um, my father, his parenting style was to scream um, and punish. Uh, he never really physically abused me, uh, but he spanked really hard and was, was verbally and emotionally abusive my whole childhood. One of the things that I got from my father, just in case you want a little more insight into why I am the way I am, um, is he used to call me worthless. That's what he, that was his nickname for me. Anyways, that's why I'm kind of an attention hog. And uh, I have a few other issues. <laughs> Just a few. Don't worry, my therapist is helping. Uh, but in that whole process, um, I remember when I was 15 and I wanted to try out music. And I really wanted to play bass. And I actually asked my mom if she would go talk to my dad for me. Will you go ask him to buy me a bass? Now, this was a year or so before they got divorced, so they didn't really talk. Um, and she said, well, you ask him. Well, you know, I, I don't discredit her for that, or, or I'm not angry with her, especially since she's listening. Hi, Mommy, I don't blame you. Um, but <laughs> in that process, I had to go sit down and talk to my dad. I sat with him while he watched a football game for about two hours before I got up the courage ask him for my first bass. And he said no. A couple weeks begging and pleading, walking around the house depressed, he finally gave in and bought me one. I've been a musician for 30 years. And I love it. But that's how I approached my father. Because Right? There's still people who think that that's how they have to approach God. Because he's some big cosmic person that's going to just beat us down every time we come to him. The Bible is telling us differently. So we can base our relationship with him on incorrect opinions that we've formed or that we've been taught by people who are very wrong. Or we can base our relationship with God on the truth of his word, which tells us we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come with all outspokenness, with all frankness, with all bluntness, with all assurance, confidence. We can come freely, openly, and plainly. And he is not going to get angry about it. 
Now, I'm not saying you should come with irreverence. He's still God. We are still to honor him in all that we do. But that doesn't mean we can't come boldly. If you need something, ask. If you need help, ask. If you need healing, ask. If you need strength, ask. We studied this in James. We have not because we ask not. If you need it, come boldly to the throne of grace. I can't emphasize this enough. That's why I titled the message this. We're talking about a lot of things, but we have an advocate. So when we come before the throne of grace, we don't come alone. The Son and the Holy Spirit come with us to the Father. And he wants to hear from us. That's why he invited us. He wants to bless us. And this is not some prosperity thing. I'm not telling you that if you come and ask boldly, he's going to give you a million dollars. I've asked and haven't gotten it. I'm just throwing it out there. You know, Lord, if you wanted to make me rich, I wouldn't argue. Think of all the good things I could do in the kingdom with that money. And he kind of laughs and says, yeah, you'd have a house full of guitars and nothing. Okay, Dad. But he wants to work in our lives. He wants to bless us. He wants to pour out his grace and mercy and compassion on us. He wants to do that. And we know that because... He told us so. And then we come to him timidly. I often compare it. Can you hand me my wallet? I'm going to use a visual, which I never do. If you needed money, and I handed you my ATM card, you would be very limited on what you could get. I mean, we're not broke. I'm not crying poverty or anything like that. You all take good care of us. The church takes good care of us. Leah's job helps take care of us. All because God is our provider. He takes care of us. Right? So I'm not complaining. But I'm just saying, if I gave you the pen and you put this in the machine, you'd probably get less than you'd think. Now God has given us an ATM card. True faith. Right? Just bear with me. This will make sense in a moment. And he's given us a pen, which is prayer. And here's the difference between his account and mine. When you put that ATM card, you could take out billions, trillions, because he has unlimited resources that he's made available to us through himself. And what do we ask for? We go to that ATM, wow, how convenient. And we take out a 20. Well, Lord, I could use your help. When what we could do is say, God, I need a miracle, and I know you can do it. And there's such a huge difference between those two. That's what it means to come boldly. That everything we could possibly need, not want, but everything we could possibly need, he has made available to us. And all we have to do is come. And where do we come? To the throne of grace, to God's seat of power 
and unmerited favor. This is where we come to the place, the source of all grace according to God's unmatched and unwavering power. That's where we come with the boldness and assurance of Christ. And when we come boldly to God's throne of grace, we will get two things. First, we will obtain mercy. We will have the mercy or compassion that's been offered to us, and he will give us the ability to accept it. Because sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? You ever, you ever struggle with accepting God's grace into your life? Accepting his compassion into your life? I have. I've gotten to places where I felt I don't deserve it. He shouldn't give it to me. And, and so I, I, don't, I don't know that I can take it. Well, let me help you out with that a little bit. You don't deserve it. He shouldn't give it to you, but he will, because he loves us that much. We'll find or obtain mercy, and then we'll find grace to help in our time of need. And I love this. The word grace, of course, means gift of benefit or favor, to give us help, which means to aid us, to help us, or that he will be our helper. Absolutely love that in our time of need. And that last phrase is the best one. It's my least favorite part of this message, but it's the best phrase. Because in our time of need, there means that it will be well-timed or at the opportune time. Which means it'll be in his time, not ours. And we must always remember to wait on him with faith. Because I'll bet you money that his time is usually, not always, but his time is usually going to be different than ours. Because his timing will always be perfect, and our timing is always impatient. At least mine is. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, I'm going to read a few other scriptures that, that reiterate this. In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you need rest for your soul? Come boldly to the throne of grace. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Do you have cares that are burdening you, that are weighing you down? Then cast them upon him. And where do we cast them upon him? You want to guess? At the throne of grace. And then Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why do I put that verse in there? Because when we come boldly to the throne of grace, we can understand that he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we can ask or anything that we can think. I often put it this way. We will come to God and ask for a healing when he wants to do a resurrection. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God for a healing. But he wants to do a resurrection. We ask God for $5 when he wants to give us a billion, metaphorically speaking. 
We ask for God, oh God, it would be great if you did this. Instead of going, God, I know you can. According to your will, when you come. Come boldly. As we close, if we we know that we have a great and sympathetic high priest. He knows everything. He has experienced everything that we have, that we are, or we will experience. He knows. He's gone through it. If you don't believe me, read the Gospels. You should read the Gospels anyway. But he's been through it. He knows what it's like to lose someone you love. He knows what it's like to be mistreated. He knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows. And he has compassion on us because of this. And he is our advocate before the Father. And in all of this, we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace where we will obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so my question to each of us is this. What are we doing with this invitation? What are you doing with it? If there's anybody listening who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've not placed your faith in him, receiving the free gift of salvation, then that's the invitation he's offering you today. That you can come to his throne of grace and he will meet your need to save you from your sin, to forgive you and cleanse you and make you right before him. That's his offering. That's his invitation. For the rest of us who do know Christ as Savior, then what's keeping us from coming boldly What's keeping us from coming to the rest he invites us into? And what's holding us back from obtaining the mercy and grace we need to help us in our time of need? And it's not just that we can come boldly. We must come boldly. We all have need. And we will all find the provision for that need at the throne of grace. The way to that throne was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. And we do not come on our own. We come through Jesus to the Father. And we will find that he will give us what we need at the right time. So let's believe this together. That when we come to him, he is able to do whatever it is we need him to do. That he can even do exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ever ask or think for him to do. And it's not just that we can, we're invited. And it's not just that he can, he wants to. But we have to come. We have to come. Let's pray. Father, I don't know all the needs in this room today, but you do. I don't know what everybody else needs to come to you for. I just know what I need to come to you. Father, I'm going to confess that I'm tired of coming in a way that does not display faith and confidence in you that I should. Please forgive me for all of the times I've approached you with any disbelief or doubt. And I pray. I know there's folks here, Lord, who need miracles. I pray for their healing. I know there's people in this room who need healing. I pray for that healing. I know there's people in this room or who are listening who are struggling spiritually or even emotionally or 
in some other way. Meet them when they need it. And maybe you're going to use other people to help with that. And well, as you know, you can just show up and do things that none of us can do. We just pray that you would and believe that you will. And that in all of this, you will receive the glory. In Jesus' name.